Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Our guest today is the firm's chief market strategist, Bill O'Grady. During these podcasts, we address current geopolitical issues affecting investment strategies in a question and answer format. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator, and many of these podcasts, each lasting about 20 to 25 minutes, will focus and expand on themes presented in the Confluence Weekly Geopolitical Report, as well as the Daily Comment and other research articles written by the firm's experts. You can access these reports on the front page of the website, confluenceinvestment.com. It's a very easy step to subscribe by email to any of these reports. Today, we continue our discussion of hegemonic stability theory. Previously, we looked at the history of hegemonic countries, countries that in the past held a dominant position militarily and economically in world affairs. We discussed how the roles of a hegemon are to provide security as well as financial liquidity, And what happens when, because of the cost of filling these roles, a hegemon begins to lose dominant influence? It's not a great stretch to see parallels to today. Bill, perhaps you could review for us, why is this discussion important to the investor? When the world is between hegemons, uh, the world deglobalizes, inflation tends to rise, investing becomes tricky. Uh, and in fact becomes more local or regional. And those previous winners become losers, and those who were losers become become winners. The other thing is these changes don't happen often. Usually a hegemon lasts anywhere between 70 to about 120 years. And so you can go through multiple generations of investors all used to living in a world where a hegemon is unquestioned and suddenly... some unfortunate generation finds themselves in that world that is no longer like it used to be. I'm adding 70 to 120 on to the, uh, the end of World War II, and uh, it brings us right to today. America has achieved or did achieve in the 20th century and into this century the role of, of the hegemon, but it did not come quickly or naturally, did it? Why, why was America hesitant to accept this role? There were, I think, really three reasons that, that kind of stuck out. The first is that America is, for the most part, a nation of immigrants. And people, f- for one reason or another, left where they were. Uh, you know, in, in my own family history, uh, I know of at least one draft dodger that uh, escaped so he could come to the United States and, and avoid uh, fighting in a, in a European war. Uh, this is true of cultures, uh, European and non-European as well. Uh, you, you, you see people coming to America to avoid all the entanglements and all the issues of the old world. And so then to get reinvolved just kind of looks crazy. Secondly, the U.S. had a very interesting development. We pushed the Canadians far enough north to where they could never support a very large population. And we pushed Mexico far enough south where the area that bordered the United States was primarily desert and also could not support a huge population. And and so we were surrounded by two weak military powers and, and two oceans. Otto van Bismarck once quipped that the United States is surrounded by weak powers and fish. 
Um, and so the U.S. tended to only get engaged when conditions around the world worsened to the point to where Americans began to fear their own security. In other words, until something happened that made Americans feel like, yeah, okay, this conflict in Europe or this conflict in Asia is starting to affect us, we're, we're going to have to get involved. And people saw that the Atlantic Ocean was not the buffer it once was. That's right, or the Pacific for that matter. So how were Americans uh, finally sold on hegemony? This is one of the more important points. Um, policies are, are not implemented, they're sold. And ask any good salesman. You don't, a good real estate agent doesn't walk into a house and immediately point out all the flaws. Uh, they don't walk you down to the basement where the termite damage is, and they don't take you to the leaks. They walk around and have you envision how wonderful it's going to be to raise your children here and have your grandchildren come visit you in this stately manner that you're buying, uh, even though it's a split level. Um, and and uh, so po policies are sold to the American people. And so Harry Truman was the primary salesman of hegemony, and he became convinced that Britain was in decline, and if the U.S. didn't fill that gap, we were going to fight the Third World War in a few years. If we retreated to that same position we retreated to after World War I. Remember, Warren Harding's campaign uh, slogan was a return to normalcy. And there were a lot of Americans that wanted to return to normalcy after the Second World War. There was a famous long telegram written by uh, an ambassador in, in the Soviet Union by the name of George Kennan, who made it clear that communism was a global threat. And so Truman presented the American people with the proposition that the U.S. had to stay involved and accept the hegemonic role to prevent communism, that, that evil force, from dominating the planet. Anyone who grew up in the 50s, very aware of, of uh, the threat of communism. That's how... We grew up, those That's of right. us who grew up in the 1950s, early 60s. Containing communism was the root then, but, but were there other goals uh, as well, which, which in retrospect were, were very important? Well, to play upon that theme, when you buy the manor, you're also buying the fact that the backyard floods. And we had three areas of the world that were a particular problem. The first was Europe. Uh, Henry Kissinger uh, used to say that Germany's too big for Europe and too small for the world. Uh, from the moment Germany unified in 1870, it became a, a problem because it was set in the middle of the, of the continent. It had this enormous economy and it feared being invaded from both the east and the west uh, because it had no natural defenses. It was set on a plane. It also made it extremely favorable for economic development because it didn't have to move around mountains. It had navigable rivers. All these things were working for them. Um, after the Second World War, the German problem had to be resolved. And the way that it was resolved was actually rather crude. We divided it up. Uh, I remember when my youngest son came home, our oldest son came home from school. He's about six or seven years old and said, Dad, did you know one time there were two Germanys? Like, yes, I did. 
having two Germanys and demilitarizing Germany and effectively taking over the security of Europe prevented Europe from being the font of yet another world war. And presidents from Kennedy complained about European free riding on American military security. However, they also had to accept our foreign policy because they couldn't, they couldn't nor would we allow them to defend themselves. A similar issue developed in the, in the Far East. Japan became the most industrialized economy in, in the Far East and had no natural resources and was fully dependent on imports. Uh, so it needed security of the sea lanes. And one of the triggers for them to bomb Pearl Harbor was an oil embargo that President Roosevelt applied to them for their activities in China. Their response was to bomb Pearl Harbor and then try to grab uh, the Dutch oil in, in the Dutch East Indies. Uh, after that war, we demilitarized the Japanese, took over their security, and it did two things. One is it, it made the Japanese realize that they were not going to have to defend their own sea lanes, that the Americans were going to do it for them. And it also told all of Japan's neighbors that no longer had to fear Japan that the U.S. had defanged it. The third area was the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East was designed for chaos. The colonial powers created nations that were really proto-states. They put people together that should have been separated and separated people that should have been put together. And each of those nations was usually ruled by a ethnic or religious minority that was dependent upon the colonial power to stay in power. And when the colonial powers left, those governments were unstable. The U.S. committed that they would maintain those borders, not because we knew those borders were sacrosanct, but we knew once the borders started to shift, it would turn into chaos. The second factor was that the Soviets had designs on Middle East oil, and we wanted to be sure they didn't get it. And so from Roosevelt on, when Roosevelt met with Ibn Saud in 1945, until the Carter declared it with the Carter Doctrine in the late 70s, that the U.S. viewed the Middle East as an area of interest and it would defend it militarily. Well, we've seen stability in, in the Middle East and the Far East. I'm talking about recent years, relative stability. And certainly in, in Europe, we've seen stability, but it has come at a cost. Our role as a hegemon has been a, a costly one, the U.S. role. Has there been anything? It seems like things have changed now. That we're not so willing to accept that role. What, what, what's going on? Well, remember, the policy was sold. And there was a seminal event that changed the sale, and that was the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism. So the Berlin Wall falls, communism goes away, and most Americans looked up and said, man, I'm glad that's over. We don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to have this big military. People in the 90s used to talk about a peace dividend. That was rubbish. We still had these three frozen conflicts that we had to keep on ice, and if they started to thaw... Uh, bad things would start to happen. Uh, but because Americans had been sold something different, they hadn't been told, hey, you know, we're, we gotta, we got to prevent these other three areas. we got to secure these or it's going to be bad. Once that veil of communism fell, then Americans were like, we don't have to do any of this anymore. And the policy elites and, you know, knew that that was not true, that if, if we allowed 
Europe to rearm, if we allowed Asia to rearm, if we didn't keep our thumb on the scale in the far e- in the Middle East, that these areas would start to fall apart. The things that caused the prior two world wars would come back. However, these same policy elites have not figured out how to sell a policy to the American people that convinces them they should accept this burden, that we should continue it. We read, in fact, every day about how Americans are uh, sharply divided on, on really a host of issues. What political movements in our country can you identify that, that are uh, chipping away at, at public acceptance of the hegemonic role? We ascribe the entire rise of populism in all of its left and right-wing forms as behind this. But there are at least three that we can clearly identify. The the first is uh, the Tea Party. The Tea Party's main goal is really to bring the government back to a size similar to what it was pre-Roosevelt. So where the government, federal government spends about 5 to 10 percent of America's GDP, currently it spends between uh, 20 and 25 percent. So a significant reduction in, in um, the government's role. Remember, there is no such thing as a small government superpower. And so if, if the Tea Party were to attain its goals, you'd have a much smaller military. And you also would not have those consumer supports that help buy all those imports. Here's another quick way of thinking about this. Anyone who looks at Social Security realizes pretty quickly that it's, it's really not exactly a pension plan. It's, it's really more of, of an intergenerational transfer of wealth. But we continue to do that in part because if you wanted people to spend, you needed to convince them they didn't need to save as much for retirement. So if, if for example, China wanted to increase its consumption, one of the quickest ways it could do that would be to establish a social security system similar to ours. Um, That would probably start to erode under a Tea Party construction. Because again, prior to uh, Franklin Roosevelt, we didn't have social security. The second movement uh, is the America First movement, which is really more of a demilitarization type movement. Uh, where the U.S. just doesn't get involved in these things. Other countries are supposed to figure this out on their own. And then the third is Occupy. If you look at the foreign policy of the populist right and the populist left, uh, all of them want to reduce or refrain from uh, America's policing role in the world. Can you say that um, then uh, that everyday people uh, are, are failing to see the benefits to them of, of hegemony? Is there a feeling that only a few are experiencing the benefits? I, I think that's exactly the feeling. Uh, from, the, uh, from the standpoint of probably the bottom 90% of households in terms of income, uh, the general feeling is that the primary benefit they get from uh, from this current situation is they they do get cheap imports, but it's hard for them to get jobs. Their children have to, you know, usually have to go into the military because of those lack of jobs. Uh, They're harmed by the constant wars and they don't see the elites sharing the burden. In fact, they feel like the elites benefit from it. And so 
kind of a, and it's not just the United States you're seeing this. You're seeing this uh, in, in, in Europe too. I mean, the whole Brexit movement is in part uh, similar to this. Um, now, for the hedgeman to do this, there is a, a, another issue, and that is that we are so far away from the Second World War that we kind of forget uh, why we did all this in the first place. Can we conclude that policing the world the way we have been doing has become politically unsustainable? So far it has. We have not seen that political figure arise similar to a Truman Kennan that has been able to say, no, we need to keep doing this, and here is why, and this is the benefit you will get from it going forward. Then can we assume that, like in the past, the decline of America as a hegemon will hamper free trade, diminish the power of the dollar, and potentially lead to more and bigger wars? That's the conclusion that, that we're drawing. The, the issue comes down to how quickly does the U.S. Uh, withdraw from the role and, and the timing of, of the breakdown. Uh, it was becoming evident by 1900 that the British were, was not the hegemon that it was 50 years earlier. Uh, had it not been for the First World War, however, they may have been able to extend that quite a while. Uh, the world wants us to keep doing this. Uh, that's why they keep accepting the dollar as the reserve currency, even though they're, they're furious about it, because no one wants to take on that role of, of running persistent trade deficits and seeing their unemployment rise. Well, the end of this role for America certainly will affect investment strategy, although I guess this takes a while to play out. It does, and that's the trick in this, is that um, the insurance costs of being positioned early are, are really high. Uh, you know, one of the things that is, is tough about this from an investing standpoint is it's part of the background noise. And it, it shows up on occasion, but um, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you abandon what you've learned yet, but you have to be forward-looking, sort of like we like to refer to that as the uh, break glass box. What do you do when the emergency starts? Well, next time we'll examine more closely the financial element of hegemony, how, how the changes that appear to be unfolding today may impact the dollar and reverse the globalization trends that we've seen in recent years. The bottom line, as always, is the, uh, the impact on investments. This has been the Confluence of Ideas, featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. Our report is based on sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com. You can also find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM. 